The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Experience the difference. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. better get healthy and help animals welcome to main street vegan with your host victoria moran is vegan the first word that comes to mind when you hear oh rachel ray macy's vogue magazine probably not but in the past two weeks all these mainstream influencers have recognized vegan innovators Marty's V Burger here in New York City is on Rachel Ray's top burgers in America list, not top vegan burgers, all burgers. And Sugand Agrawal, founder of Gunas, the brand, was presented by Macy's and won Best Retail Bag in the 2018 Independent Handbag Awards. And Riverdale Cheese, vegan fromagerie founded by main street vegan academy graduate michaela grobe was cited by vogue as a stop not to miss when you're visiting the brooklyn museum congratulations to all winter winners and to veganism in general for this kind of recognition from the mainstream if you'd like to know more about these three people, they've all been featured on our show, and you can listen to those episodes on Unity Online Radio, on Stitcher, and on iTunes. I guess we're calling those now Apple Podcasts, and I'll make those episodes our blast from the past recommendations on the show notes this week at MainStreetVegan.net. I am Victoria Moran, host of this program. You can find out more about what I'm up to at MainStreetVegan.net, where you can join our inner circle, get in on stuff other people don't see. You can also follow Main Street Vegan on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Would love to connect. Now, after the break today, we're going to venture into an area of controversy with a vegan beekeeper. Oxymoron? Well, we'll find out. But now we will be talking with Laura Theodore. You know Laura Theodore, the jazzy vegetarian. She's a singer. She is a TV host of the Jazzy Vegetarian on PBS, a podcast host, Jazzy Vegetarian Radio. And right now, brand new and wonderful and exciting, she's the creator and co-owner of the Jazzy Vegetarian Vegan Cafe, a popular plant-based eatery in Hendersonville, North Carolina. She's the author of four vegan cookbooks, and her latest one, in all honesty, everybody, I know I'm always talking about how great all these vegan books and cookbooks are, but Laura Theodore's latest, Deliciously Vegan, makes whole food plant-based wholly delicious and plant celebratory. And I've got to tell you, the oil-free salad dressings alone, I tend to not like oil-free salad dressings. I tend to think they're bland and thin and kind of why bother? Oh my gosh, Laura Theodore's oil-free salad dressings and deliciously vegan 
are worth the price of the book. You heard it here. I have made four of them, and I'm just eating salad like crazy. Welcome, Laura Theodore. Well, thank you. Wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm so impressed oh, that, with myself that, now, Victoria. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I've got to tell you, this oil-free salad dressing thing is a deal. I mean, I'm Italian. I'm used to olive oil. I used to be used to blue cheese and ranch and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, you have got it down. I just have to, uh, hats off. Hats off, cookbook creator and recipe owner. My gosh, what do you not do? A lot of things, but it is something, I'm so glad that you noticed those, uh, you know, uh, salad dressing recipes because I've worked on them for so many years and a little secret to that is I'm trying to get my husband to eat them. So they have to be very, very delicious. And, of course, now we're feeding a lot of people in a cafe, so we want to make them very, very delicious. And so after many, many years of experimentation, that's what I came up with, some of the uh, dressing recipes in this book. So I'm so happy you like them. Oh, I like them a lot. And, and my favorite kind of trick that I had never used before in a salad dressing uh, was the white beans. I mean, that's... That's miraculous. Then you don't even need to go into nuts or nut butter or anything if you don't want to. Exactly. And even the recipes that have, for example, cashews and white beans, you can substitute the amount of cashews called for in that recipe with more white beans, and it still comes out absolutely delicious. Oh, whoever thought the world would get this good? <laughs> I know lots of times we look out there and say, oh, my God, it's so terrible. And yet, you know what? We can all be vegan. We can all be healthy. And life is wonderful. And that's really your mission, making the world a better place one recipe at a time. So tell us how a recipe can make the world better. Well, a recipe can make the world better because when you think about it, it's just step by step that we're all trying to do better in our lives. And if you think about it, if you just take one day a week, if you've never ventured onto a plant-based menu plan, just take that one day a week, like Paul McCartney says, that meat-free Monday or meat-free Saturday or even, once again, a whole day, a whole meal, whatever you want to do, and then do it plant-based, do it vegan, do it so that you're not harming the animals, and that's basically it. We're making ourselves healthy. We're helping to save the environment by our impact on with our carbon emissions. And we're also, of course, compassion towards animals, which is one of the most important reasons, in my opinion. You know, it is for me too, Laura, because as much as I am jazzed about the health, and I totally am, and I think the older we get, kind of the more jazzed we get about the health because we see so many people of our age on lots of medications and having problems that they just don't deserve and that are just so sad. And yet, we're going to eat 80,000 meals in a lifetime. And if there's an animal involved in some of those, it wasn't just one of 80,000. It's, it's everything. That's a big yeah. deal. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. So if we think about it that way, every recipe that we make plant-based, every meal that we eat vegan, every time we start adding more vegan meals into our weekly menu plan, in the world, a better place, one recipe at a time. Yeah, I love it. And delicious, too, when we're using your recipes. So I noticed that this book, 
maybe a little bit more even than some of your earlier ones, is seeming pretty easy and quick. Are you kind of getting more into the let's spend less time in the kitchen and more time doing other things? I think we all are, Victoria. And to be honest, this book has really been 20 years in the making. I mean, for example, I've had this book in my vision. There are a lot of recipes that I created uh, five years ago, but I felt like I was saving it for this book. In other words, I really wanted to come up with a volume that was going to make it very easy for people, uh, really have every kind of food you could possibly think of for substituting, excuse me, for animal foods. I mean, that's why I have my top 10 lists for making cheese at home, my top 10 lists for egg and baking substitutes, et cetera, et cetera. I even have my top 10 two-ingredient recipes. But more and more, all of us seem to be taking on more, becoming busier. I find myself at night, oh my gosh, I just don't want to spend a lot of time cooking. And I feel that If I'm like that, everybody must be like that. I think people often think, oh, she's a chef. She spends all this time cooking every night. Eh, That's not (laughs) how I do it. (laughs) I'm like everybody else. I get home and I'm like, oh, my gosh, what are we going to have for dinner tonight? So this really is directed towards that, being able to organize one's menu plans and make them a heck of a lot easier, a heck of a lot quicker to prepare. Yeah. And so give us some tips. Just give us some quick and easy. What can we do to lessen our time in the kitchen and still create meals that are going to make other people want to be vegan? Well, the first one is just a basic one that I think everybody thinks about and everybody knows, but we don't all do, myself included. But what I like to try to do is make a big batch of ground rice or basmati rice, whatever rice you like or whatever grain you like at the beginning of the week. So that's sitting there all week. So you can make a uh, stir fry. You can make a fried rice if you want. You can make soup with that. You can make a even a, a rice chili with that. You can make a quick casserole with that by just adding veggies. So that's tip number one. Another thing I always like to keep in my refrigerator Potatoes, if you bake up a whole bunch of russet potatoes or white potatoes, whichever ones you like, and sweet potatoes at the beginning of the week, there's so many things that you can do with them by just adding a few ingredients. I mean, one of my husband's favorite is if you bake up a whole bunch of russets and you have your russet potato with your meal that night, later on the week what I like to do is I cut them into wedges or I even cut them into almost looking like French fries. You can do them oilless if you like. You can also add just a little bit of oil to them, add some spices. If you want them to be kind of have a Mexican flair, you can add some chili powder and some cayenne. If you want them to have an Italian flair, I like to add Italian herbs, a little bit of garlic powder. Toss it together, put them in a 400 oven uh, for about 40 minutes, and there you come up with oven-baked French fries. Easy, easy, easy. And it's so good. One of my two-ingredient recipes, one of my favorites, if you bake up those sweet potatoes in advance, you have your sweet potato for dinner that night, there's a couple of different things you can do with them. Something that's very easy, I actually learned from Dr. Pam Popper, I think it's absolutely brilliant. You just split that sweet potato in half, and you take some leftover soup, leftover chili, even in a pinch, some vegan canned soup, if you really have like two minutes to make dinner. Heat that up, pour it over your sweet potato, and it's a full dinner, great nutrition, absolutely fantastic. 
That sounds so yummy. And actually, you know, I've done things like that. I just never thought of it as brilliant. <laughs> I just thought of it as efficient. And, and that's well, wonderful. I think, I think we need to give ourselves credit, too. You know, when you come up with something that's wonderful, let other people know about it. Well, that's the whole point. A lot of times we'll say to ourselves, oh, I'm not really cooking tonight. I'm going to make a sweet potato with some soup over it. Hey, you know what? That's actually a recipe. I'm sorry, but it is. Because if you have that sweet potato and it's not cooked and you have that soup and it's still in a can, you do have to do something with it. It's just that there are fewer steps than, uh, you know, making uh, some portobello steaks or something like that, which brings to mind, that's something that I've really worked on in this book. A very, very easy recipe that I do for company is these portobello steaks, and it's something that's very easy to do, very, very uh, impressive for your guests, something you can do, make in your refrigerator, have a portobello sandwich during the week, have it, reheat it, cut it up, put it into a little bit of uh, cashew sauce that you make yourself in the blender. I mean, there are so many simple things you can do, and that brings me to my second time-saving tip, and that is just what you're talking about, making our sauces, making our uh, salad dressings. We can make those a couple of days in advance. You don't want them sitting in the refrigerator too long, particularly if they have, uh, even if they, if they have the beans, they start, you know, getting a little bit more compressed, I must say. They start losing their water after a couple of days, but it's so easy to do, to just Soak some cashews, put them with some canned white beans and a little bit of lemon juice, maybe some herbs. You have an instant creamy ranch dressing that you can use on your salad, but you can also use that on a casserole. You can also use that on steamed greens. My main point is that what you were saying, let's just get really creative in the kitchen while we're saving steps. And the third thing is to just make sure that you have a few basic pieces of equipment in the kitchen that are going to help you make these plant-based meals. Now, for me, as you know, for many years, it's been my Vitamix. I don't use a food processor. I, I pretty much do everything in that. So find a piece of equipment that perhaps you're going to spend a little bit of money on, but you're going to be able to depend on. It's going to last you for 10 years. It's going to help you to make those meals a little bit faster. I would just love to have an hour on the phone with you as a kind of webinar on just tips. You know, I think that we think so much about recipes and do you have the recipe for this and do you have the recipe for that? But most of the time, people aren't using recipes anyway because they don't have any tarragon or, you know, whatever it is. And so just this wonderful instruction about how to become very fluent in the kitchen. You're so good at that. Well, I agree with you. Most people don't use recipes, and I think that's why people get intimidated. And getting back to the book, that's what this book is all about, deliciously vegan. Vegan is delicious. So many people think of vegan, oh, it's salads. Oh, it's just this really bland thing. And it's some of the most tasty cuisine you could ever have in the universe, as far as I'm concerned. And I think that's what this book is about. I give some basic tips on how to do your homemade cheese or your dressings, or your two-ingredient ideas, or how to uh, you know do your baking without eggs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I have a whole chapter of that. 
My top 10 things you should have in the pantry for creating meals at the last minute. Basically, what this book does is, of course, we have over 175 recipes, and 90% of them are recipes you can make under 30 minutes. But I also have my top 10 list of you always want to have, well, really the top one is what I just talked about, some canned beans. And I know that a lot of people say, oh, you know, canned beans are processed, canned beans cost more than dried beans. But I think of it this way. If you don't have the time, you want to have something that you can do really quickly and have in your pantry. Oh, absolutely. I remember years and years ago when we only had two vegan cookbooks, at least two that I knew of, The Vegan Kitchen by Freya Dinshaw and Ten Talents by Rosalie Hurd, that Freya put in uh, The Vegan Kitchen, the can opener is the least used implement in The Vegan Kitchen. But for beans (laughs) and for tomatoes sometimes, you just need a can. So, yeah, I mean, this is not about going to perfection heaven. It's about being vegan and having good food and a good life. Yahoo. Yes. So speaking of a good life, how about cookies and cakes and muffins and things of chocolate? (laughs) Where do we put those? Well, I think that um, just to your point as far as the can opener is concerned, Dr. Pam Popper has made a, a point many times on my podcast as far as organic food is concerned. Um, It's kind of the same thing as the can opener. So many people think, well, I've got to have organic, I've got to have organic. But she makes a good point. She said, well, if you're waiting to find um, everything organic in your store and you're only eating a few different fruits and vegetables, well, that's not giving you good nutrition either. So we have to balance it. If we like to make our homemade beans, you know, then let's do that. But let's also keep open to when we might have to use canned beans. Same thing with organic. We like to have organic, but let's keep in mind if there's a particular uh, type of green or vegetable that we're just not finding that way and we start cutting it out of our diet, then we have to kind of balance and say, okay, maybe I need the nutrients from this vegetable. Sometimes or occasionally I might have it not being organic, and I hope you don't get a lot of mail- emails about that. <laughs> it's kind of, no, that's it's, it's kind really of interesting. I remember back in the 80s, there was that really popular book, Fit for Life, and yes. that they said you shouldn't eat fruit with any other kind of food, and I yes. found myself getting dizzy. If all I had was some fruit in the morning, I just couldn't make it to lunch without having to sit down. So I think, honestly, Laura, I may have gone three years without having a piece of fruit because I couldn't follow the rule and do it right. When the truth is we need to be eating fruit and we need to be eating it whenever, wherever, and not get caught in in these rules. You know, some are probably right and some probably aren't, but none of them are worth avoiding produce. We need that. I love it. I love it. I love it so much that you know what? I have exactly the same story. You know, Are you serious? We're of the same age, the fit for life, the same thing, the fruit. I found myself eating less and less fruit, and then I said, wait a minute, you've got to have fruit. And we just kind of decide certain times of day that are the best for us to eat it and make sure we incorporate it into our diets. And I agree with you 100%, brilliantly said. Well, we're soul sisters anyway. We already knew that. So not to let produce interfere with cookies, cakes, muffins, and chocolate. <laughs> Yeah. Which was where we were going. 
Yes, sorry about that. No, that's all um, right. There's always time for chocolate. Th there really is. And the wonderful thing is, since I started uh, the television show and I started writing books, as you know, all of a sudden there's so many wonderful vegan chocolates. I have to put a shout-out to Pasha Chocolate, who's been so kind and, and uh, you know, uh, giving us a lot of chocolate for the television show and, and supporting us through the years. But also the wonderful thing that they do is making not only a vegan but an allergen-free chocolate. So the point I'm getting to is not only is there a plethora of delicious vegan chocolates out there now, there's also a plethora of allergy-free chocolates, in other words, that are nut-free and, uh, you know, some of them are not made with, with the base of soy. They make a rice milk chocolate. There are a lot of different ones out there. Then people say, well, you know, I'm going to go vegan, but gosh, I can't have desserts. The desserts on the vegan diet are some of the most delicious that you've ever tasted. And then people say, well, it's so difficult. There's a great recipe that's one of my favorite recipes of all, where you can just take a little bit of tofu. You could also use cashews if you don't like to use soy. But you take about 12 ounces of tofu, uh, a little bit of maple syrup, or a little bit of brown sugar or agave, whatever you like, and uh, some vegan chocolate chips. You put the tofu in the blender. You put the vegan chocolate chips on top of them. You simmer some plant-based milk on the stove, whatever kind you like, and you bring it to almost a bowl, you pour it over the top in your blender container. It has to be a high-performance blending appliance. You blend it up, put it in the refrigerator, and let it firm up, and you've got the best chocolate mousse you've ever had in your entire life. Easy, easy recipes like this are things that I think we have to look at when we say we're depriving ourselves. No, you can have exactly what you're saying. You can have cakes, cookies, pies, mousse, Everything that you would have on an omnivorous diet, you can enjoy and it tastes better as a vegan dessert. I love that. So somebody made a joke on a TV show not long ago about, you know, some kind of vegan muffin, you know, being flat and weighing five pounds. And I remember mm -hmm. when they used to be like that. So what mm -hmm. are your tips um, for making us defy our hippie heritage and have some nice, light, fluffy, really great baked goods? That's such a refreshing question. And I think it's something that is very important to answer. Because I, too, when I first started experimenting with making vegan muffins, had these just kind of, you know, kind of flat things. And I had to kind of figure it out over a period of 15 years. And so there are different types of things that you can use to replace eggs to help lighten up your recipe or to help leaven vegan uh, muffins. Let's just talk about muffins in particular. And I think what happens is that, you know, a very popular one is mashed bananas. That's been around forever. But, yes, as I say in my book, that makes gives you an extra sweet taste but a very dense texture. So when you're thinking of substitutes when you are baking, specifically in a muffin, you want to think of all the different substitutes you can have for an egg or for leavening, and then you also want to think of what kind of muffin you want to have. In other words, if you want to have a muffin that has 
kind of a mild taste, like there's no banana back taste or vinegar back taste from rising it with the baking soda, but you want it to be moist and light. One of the most popular is a tablespoon of ground flax seeds mixed with three tablespoons of water. What the flax seeds do is they give off a little bit of oil, they give off a little bit of moisture with that um, you know, with that water, and they will also help to leaven because think about it, when you put flax seeds that are ground, of course, you put them in a bowl and you put some water on top of them, you stir it together, five minutes later you look at it and it's kind of puffed up, it kind of looks like egg white. So that's a good one for that. The other thing is using baking soda and lemon juice as a leavener and to help to puff up and to help to hold it together as well. You can just take a teaspoon of baking soda and about two, about three tablespoons of lemon juice. And you want to use that. You can have a little bit of a lemon back taste in your muffin, but it's going to give it a really light and fluffy texture, which makes it absolutely just like a, a muffin that you made with eggs. So that's just a couple of tips. I have a top 10 list in the book uh, about that. Oh, those are wonderful tips. And I had never heard the baking soda and lemon juice until I heard it from you. That one's amazing. That even gives you muffins that have those tops. <laughs> oh, well, I, I miss very few things from my omnivorous days, I have to say. But muffins, you know, with those tops <laughs> that would kind of yeah. spill over and be wonderful. Those I think of fondly sometimes. And, and with this uh, baking soda lemon juice tip, you get those. You really do, and sometimes you have to experiment. If you have a favorite recipe, you might have to put in a little bit more lemon juice or a a little bit less baking soda to make it come out exactly, but you'll see it comes out nice and big and puffy and rounded, nice and light, and I also use this for cakes, uh, for for keeping cakes really light. I find that it works a lot better. A lot of uh, chefs, and I do have it in the book as an option, use baking soda with vinegar. But I find you get a little bit of a vinegar back taste, and also it just doesn't make it as nice and light and fluffy. I think it's part of that lemon in the background. But, of course, you can make a great lemon cake out of that as well. And something I think that a lot of people don't think of, I, I I never read it until I came up with it, is you can use instead of an egg, believe it or not, three tablespoons of finely shredded dried coconut plus three tablespoons of water or non-dairy milk. If you want kind of a coconutty back taste, you don't want to use coconut oil, and it will give you a little bit of a dense texture, not as dense as with bananas. But what that does is, think about it, when that uh, coconut is baking in the oven and it's mixed with that water with the liquid it's going to start puffing up it's going to start to rehydrate itself and it will start to leave off some of the natural oil that's in Ooh, that coconut when, li- when life gives you lemons make lemon cake and put in some coconut we'll be exactly. back right after these Yay. messages welcome. We're glad you found us. Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. It takes you to power Unity Online Radio. If you'd like to make a positive difference in the world, you can by contributing to this global ministry. 
Unity Online Radio relies on listeners like you to support our broadcasts that send our messages out to an awakening world. Go to unityonlineradio.org and click on Donate Today. Have you ever said to yourself, I'm living a life I never intended to create? What life did you intend to create? Did you set goals? Did you work toward reaching those goals? If we don't have a specific goal in mind or we don't know where we want to go, we may be likely to end up in places not of our choosing. Establishing goals along with guidelines on how to achieve them helps to keep us focused and energized and often makes our lives more interesting, useful, and successful. It's never too late to take control of your life. Once you have your purpose clearly in mind, explore the various ways you can make it happen and visualize the process you believe can work best. Set goals, do what it takes to accomplish them, and enjoy your process. This message has been brought to you by the Association of Unity Churches International. To find a Unity Church near you, visit www.unity.org. Here's a Unity Mindful Moment. The ancient Chinese philosopher known as Lao Tzu brings us into the present moment with this quote. Do you have the patience to wait until your mud settles and the water is clear? Can you remain unmoving till the right action arises by itself? The master doesn't seek fulfillment, but not seeking, not expecting, is fully present and can welcome all things. When you're feeling impatient, think about this passage and trust in the moment. Since 1924, Daily Word has offered inspiration and practical teachings through daily prayer messages to help people of all faiths live happy, healthy lives. The magazine includes two months of daily affirmations, messages, articles, and spiritual poetry to help you get inspired. Subscriptions are available for print editions in large type and Spanish, as well as the digital subscription package that includes the online magazine with audio, smartphone app, and daily email. Get your subscription today. Visit dailyword.com or unity.org. Discover how to connect with our loved ones on the other side with Suzanne Giesman and Messages of Hope. Tune in every Thursday at 3 p.m. Central as Suzanne shares evidence that love never dies. In evidential medium, spiritual teacher, and author, Suzanne brings hope and healing through her gift of communication with those who have passed. Suzanne brings messages of hope and love that go straight to the heart. Tune in this Thursday right here on Unity Online Radio. Call now with your question or comment. 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Everybody, welcome back to the program. We ran into our hard stop at 30 minutes after and had to leave Laura Theodore before she was able to tell us about her brand new baby, her fabulous restaurant in North Carolina. Are you back, Laura? I'm back, and I just have to say thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I think you're brilliant. I love you. You're the best. Thank you for the work you're doing. And uh, we're having our grand opening in Hendersonville on July 4th. We've been doing some pop-ups. 
but we have the grand opening of the Jazz Vegetarian Vegan Cafe, and it's fabulous in a vegan brewery. And if anybody's in the Asheville, Hendersonville area, we hope you will join us anytime. Well, anytime after July 4th, come and see us. That is so exciting. Congratulations. And, oh, I would love to get down there. I hear the Veg Fest down there is amazing. And now there's going to be your amazing restaurant, too. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Very thank cool. You, Victoria. Thank, thank you, Laura. Bye-bye. Ah, now we are going to be moving along to a gentleman that I met in Santa Barbara, California in January when I was out there touring with the Main Street Vegan Academy cookbook. And he is an interesting person because his job title sounds to many people like something Mm -hmm. that doesn't fit. He is a vegan beekeeper. So he is the co-founder of the Santa Barbara Beekeepers Association And he is completely invested in the importance of honeybees, the issues affecting honeybees, and in urban and vegan beekeeping. Now, I just wanted to mention a little bit of history because I understand that this is controversial. And I know that to a whole lot of vegans, honey is just not vegan, period, end of story. I understand that and I respect that. I just need to come from a little bit of a historical perspective, however, and say that when I became vegan back in the 1980s and when I started trying to become vegan back in the 1970s, the stand of the Vegan Society UK, where it all started, was that honey was left to individual discretion. And they have since changed that, but it was a period of about 20 years where honey was left to personal conscience. So I came into veganism with that teaching and that idea. So I'm very open to looking at at bees and honey in whatever kind of way is going to save the bees, because I have heard it said that as horrific as the consequences of global warming might be, loss of the bees would be even worse. And I think no one knows more about this in the vegan world, certainly, than Paul Cronshaw. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Victoria. It's a pleasure to be on your show. It it is an honor to have you. So first, give us your vegan story. How did you become a vegan person? Then we'll get into the bees. Um, So um, it started um, when I was basically... um, about 40 years, well, 40 years ago, I started as a beekeeper, but um, I grew up in a household of, uh, you know, omnivores, as I called it. But primarily because of my education in the chiropractic world, I had a lot of nutritional education. And then later, a couple of in certain uh, family problems, I started looking at my eating habits and realizing that, hmm, if I don't want to follow my parents' footsteps and things like that, I better start to look at my diet and everything, especially for my from my chiropractic point of view, because we get a lot more education there. So as a result of that, I, when my mother passed away, I decided to go on a retreat and I started hiking the John Muir Trail. And I realized I was going to go basically totally plant-based and I was going to go take no stove and just kind of soak everything. It's called cold soaking these days. And I was just hooked on that. I would just realize that this is the way to go. I had a lot more energy. I was get up and go and everything. And it was just a wonderful eye-opener. And then after a while, I just kind of delved into more and more. And then after a few physicals, I realized my cholesterol was level that was dropping. But the hardest thing to give up was cheese. And so about four years ago, I finally made that move 
and then uh, have then been since researching a lot of doctors like Colin Campbell, Dean Ornish, John McDougall, all the well-known uh, plant-based uh, uh, medical doctors in the world. And I've just been a totally, totally uh, great adventure for me to have. And it's something that I will never go back to as the other one is. And just been, and it's, it's, a st- it's a lifestyle. It's basically a lifestyle that I have taken on and embraced, and I am fully invested in it too. So that's my story of how I have taken on the world of veganism. Cool. So were you a beekeeper before or since? Yes. I was, yes, I was a beekeeper when I was in high school. I had a high school teacher who had, believe it or not, a beehive in his back of his classroom. And instead of listening to him, I'd listen to the bees. And I got bee fever then. And as a result of that, I said, I've got to do this. But back in their days, there was no Internet. There was no, nothing here. And I could only get bees from the uh, Sears catalog. So I got my first beehive from Sears catalog, no instruction, put it together. And then I said, where do you get bees from? And they said, oh, you can get them from Sears catalogs. So I got them from Sears catalog. I stayed home from school one day, and they delivered to me from Mississippi. And I jumped my bees into a box, and then that, I haven't looked back since then. Um, that's why I've been a beekeeper all along. It's a journey. It's absolutely a journey. And I have been keeping bees for a long time, but the bees are my teachers. I really don't keep them. They keep me. Well, I have heard that term bee fever. There are a couple of wonderful documentaries uh, that I saw. One was called Queen of the Sun. Another was called The Disappearance of the Bees. And in both of those, that was where I really started looking at, you know what, maybe as a vegan, I shouldn't be one of these anti-beekeeper people because it seems like these people are doing a whole heck of a lot more to save bees than I will ever do. And they did talk about how just all of a sudden sometimes they just fell in love with this incredible special species. That's correct. That's what I did. There's something magic about a little insect that makes a twelfth of a teaspoon of honey in its lifetime, lives in a large population known as a superorganism, and travels from flower to flower doing their thing here and then bring a substance which we can use. And other insects can use it also, too. Um, and it's their food, and it does very well with them. So, yes, it's a, it's a wonderful insect. In fact, I, I have a, an interesting thing. Have you pet a bee today? Like, like have you hugged a person? Have you pet a bee? <laughs> Probably not. Uh, no, <laughs> tell no. us, just take us back to elementary science class because I think a lot of us has probably forgotten. Just a very encapsulated description of what do bees do, what is pollination, and why do we need them so much, whether we eat honey or not. That's very interesting. I was just at the Boys and Girls Club doing a little presentation for fifth graders in a summer camp, and we got into a topic of pollination. And so, yes, they did know the answers to my questions about how bees are basically the legs of plants. If you think about it, plants can't move, but the bees can do their job for them. So that's why bees are often called the legs of the plants. So a bee will be enticed by a flower to, which produces nectar to take uh, back to its hive along with pollen on something called a pollen basket. So the pollen is the protein of the, for the bee and the carbohydrates of the, of the nectar. And then they will basically turn it into honey there, um, which then the bees can use in stores very well over a long time. And that's what the bees do here. They basically take the pollen, which is the male sperm here, back to the, another flower, and they only work single flowers. They'll go from one flower to the next, so it's very specific. And that's just their marching orders for the day here. So they are the legs of the plant food carrying the pollen and the nectar back to the hive where it's being stored and processed to their content, and then they will use it to live off it when there's times when there's no flowers, and we call it a dearth. This is so fascinating. And so 
what's the problem? I mean, we've all heard about colony collapse disorder, but it seems to me that about five years ago, all kinds of people were talking about it. And now what's the deal? I don't hear anything about it. Does that mean they've figured it out and all will be well, or it's just so terrible, nobody even wants to go there? Um, you know, bees have had disappearing diseases, and if you look at the timeline of bees over the years, they've had these sort of epic plagues, you might say, as they pop up every now and then. And so I think it's just another one of these environmental situations and that's been taking over the bees. Um, it was coined, this word was coined in about 2006. I think uh, one of the videos of Vanishing the Bees kind of talks a little bit about how they show a picture of a beekeeper in there where she's opening up a hive and there's no bees, nothing's there. The beehive is completely empty, no queens, no robbing, they're up and gone. Um, so when, I, when I'm teaching my classes on beekeeping to whether it's students or everything, I have the five Ps or the four Ps actually, which is pesticides, pests, pathogens, poor nutrition. Those are the, what I call the perfect storm that's taking the bees by, by, by their stressors. They are actually stressing out the bees. And when you stress out the bees with either one of them or all the combination of all of them, then we have a little bit of a crisis. And uh, I, yeah, I kind of agree with you a little bit about how colony collapse might be on the par or more above the par of the uh, global warming uh, just because they produce a lot of food for our, 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 our human race, basically. Very important to have those bees around. So, so what are the foods that bees pollinate that we wouldn't have if they weren't here? There's a, there's a great, and you can look it up on YouTube, there's a great, um, um, what I call it, the Whole Foods has a great before and after picture here. If you had bees and didn't have bees here, um, one of them is, of course, almonds. Almonds need 100% pollination, blueberries. And some of the other fruits and everything need 90%, and then you go on down from there. So you can think of all your fruits, and everything like that would be gone. Um, even alfalfa, which, of course, is responsible for lots of different things like milk and that kind of stuff. Some of your nuts and seeds, very much so. So you'd be basically left with nothing but roots and leaves. That's it. Very mm. bland. That's pretty basic. So what can we do for the bees? I mean, what can just people who live in houses with yards or even somebody like me in a New York City apartment, what can we do to help them out? The best thing you can do, of course, well, if you live in a house and you have a lawn, is tear up the lawn. Okay, that's what I always advocate here is to just tear up your lawn and plant more pollinator-friendly plants. Now, whether you put them where the lawn used to be or if you're living in an apartment complex and putting them into a, um, to a, uh, into a container, some of the big ones are the sages, the salvias. One of the great ones are basil. Um, lavender and rosemary are especially important here too. Just those four, you're providing what I call the McDonald's or whatever, this buffet of plants that bees can do. Not only bees, but also other pollinators too. You can keep your yard wild, let those dandelions grow. Don't cut them down here. Um, you can also support local beekeepers. You can buy unfiltered cold-packed, that's the key, cold-packed honey from a local farmer's market. And, of course, the big one is to buy organic produce and things like that. And then, finally, I try to empower the people that I teach here is uh, to take a beekeeping class and become a beekeeper yourself. Um, that's really, I'm finding more and more people are starting to do that move just because they want to learn about bees, but they also want to help the bees, too. Well, I think that that very word beekeeper kind of makes a lot of vegans very uncomfortable. Like, weren't there bees before humans got in their way or whatever you want to call it? I mean, why do we need humans hanging out with bees? Can't the bees just do it on their own? 
They sure can. And one of the things I have, I tell my students, tell people about it, is that bees are wild creatures. They do not like to be domesticated, put into a box, and then taken care of. They'd rather just be living in a tree by themselves as a feral hive. And whenever I have a feral hive and somebody says, you know, I, I want to get rid of them, I say, do you really want to get, you know, the value of that bee tree in your backyard? That thing is like just absolutely valuable, priceless. And I ask to advocate them to do that. So, yes, bees have been around for 14 million years. They know how to, they figured everything out. And then we come along and unfortunately we're adding a little bit more of a stressor to them. And that's what's causing some problems that we're having to deal with today. And yet you're still okay being a beekeeper. That That is, just just make the ethical connection for me. They would rather be by themselves in a tree, yep. but you think it's also good to be a beekeeper. And I also want to insert, we did a show within the past year with uh, one of the founders of Bee Free Honey, lovely apple-based mm-hmm. vegan mm-hmm. Uh, alternative to honey. And even though she's the creator of this product, she said, we still need beekeepers. So I think a lot of us yeah. are very confused. Yeah, so I, I consider myself a steward of the bees, kind of helping them along, shepherding them a little bit, as you might say, helping them what they need to do, whether it be giving them some sort of a home if you need to temporarily, and then just kind of leaving them alone. We have a different term between you can be a beekeeper or a bee haver. Those are uh-huh. two terms. Bee havers, bee havers are kind of like, there's the bees. I put them in a box. Maybe they can live there, give them some environment. And they're kind of doing their own thing. I might be check on them every now and then, and they do their own thing. But beekeepers and bee havers, um, really, again, I go back to that, that. I don't keep bees. They keep me. They're my, uh, my teachers. If I do something that I'm learning from them, they'll definitely teach me about something. So I'm just a steward of the bees even after 40 years. So keeping I think bees. that a, a lot of us, you know, in, in reading our vegan information, we're told certainly about large commercial beekeepers that the the bees are fed a cheap corn syrup substitute to get them through the winter so that the honey can be taken in the fall. And then we also hear about how they're shipped around in big trucks to pollinate a couple of the foods you mentioned, maybe more, certainly almonds, berries, apples. So the, the people who are hanging out with the bees just don't have a great reputation in vegan circles. Is there a big difference between what those big people do and what people like you do? So we have a couple different levels of beekeeping, I call them. The commercial beekeepers are the ones that are doing it, you know, 100-plus hives, and they're moving it from from one monocrop to the other. And then we have the sideliners who do it just a little bit on the side. They have maybe 20, 30, 40 hives. And then we have the hobbyist beekeepers, which have one or two in their backyard. So we're seeing a lot of movement in the uh, urban beekeeping environment, which is the one or two. There's a famous line that they have in the Vanishing of the Bees where the one gentleman says, we don't really need one person keeping 60,000 hives. We need 60,000 people keeping one hive. Now, there's some truth to that in both ways. But there's room for everybody. Okay, you commercial beekeepers, in order to feed our population of humans, and also animals, too, we would have to have a lot of beekeepers. So then we're talking giant scale here. So they've had to ramp up to a certain level. But when you get down to the hobbyist beekeeper one-on-one and things like that, that's a whole different level of interaction with the beekeepers. And that's what I think we need more of, which is why we're 
teaching also youth, the high school kids, the junior high school, the younger generation, because there's people who need, in my opinion, need to also have a little bit of understanding, more understanding about bees. And then with that, you can then introduce the whole thing about the bees and the food cycle and the food chain and how they're important in all the plants they do and important for all the other animals that have on the planet also. So I think that that level kind of explains the difference between all three of them. So... When I saw those films um, and the disappearance of the bees and the Queen of the Sun, it, it, it did give me a very different perspective on, on bees, and, and it, it gave me an interest in bees that I had never had before. And they talked in there about spring-harvested honey, and they said that some of these biodynamic beekeepers are very interested in in the bees and they're more interested in the bees than in the honey and they don't even harvest the honey in the fall they let the bees have it all through the winter and then in the spring they harvest whatever is left so i just started doing a little research and i was looking for you know where do you find this spring harvested honey i couldn't find it at all except on sites where they also do a fall harvest so i'm wondering if this great ethical kind of beekeeping really exists or if it's just in such tiny little pockets that the vegan message of don't eat honey is just the best way to go. The current so vegan message biodynamic, Yeah, biodynamic beekeeping, I think uh, one of the famous persons to do that is Gunther Hauk, How to Spike in Art Farms. He does a program and inherits at Sanctuary of Bees, and his, certainly his philosophy is kind of one that I've been following also as I learn more and more about his technique, and he was also out in Santa Barbara giving a workshop. So when you're dealing with bees storing their honey over the wintertime, honey is an insulation unit, so bees can then feed off their own honey that had the year before. As they go into the wintertime, it insulates the population of bees that are in there so they can keep their hive at 94 degrees. And then as the springtime comes along, then that honey sometimes uh, gets in the way of the queen laying eggs. So then beekeepers come in and they take the honey off so that they can give room for the queen to lay so that she can then continue the population. Because if not, it's something called honey-bound. So what you're doing is you're just removing the excess, kind of like taking the rent, but it's usually from the year before because it's been stored from the year before, the fall harvest, the fall flowers, and then it goes into dormancy with snow depending on where you are in the year. Here in Santa Barbara, the bees fly 365 days of the year except when it rains and it snow. I mean, when it's foggy. And so what you need to do is take, this, take their honey off so that you can give them some more room or put more boxes on and leave their honey on. It just depends on how your philosophy of beekeeping is. But I tend to basically take, you don't take a lot of honey, you take a little bit and say, and you also have to ask the bees, can I take some of your little honey? You don't mind sharing it? And they're pretty good about that, you know, that kind of situation. Um, and then from there, you need most of it on so that they can continue to use it. Because as we are getting into drought, there's times when there's no flowers at all for a couple of months. And then beekeepers have to resort to feeding the sugar one-to-one ratio of uh, cane sugar, which is the bees don't like that very much at all because it's not the same level of quality of honey they have before. So spring honey has to be taken off when there's spring flow, and that's usually about, you know, when you think about depending on the year, that, of part of the country that you're in, could be anywhere starting in February, March, or later on in May and June. So that's something that maybe that's a good idea to think about. This is spring honey, where it came from and what time of the year. Labeling the product where it came from, it's kind of like wine. When the grapes were crushed, what, when was the wine made? That kind of situation. So we could start some ideas about that. Well, if somebody did want to have honey, and I understand that there is a lot of information in the health world, uh, certainly about allergy prevention, 
Um, I, I know a lot of, of vegans are into the work of the medical medium and all his recommendations are vegan. And he also recommends uh, raw honey. So if someone wanted to purchase honey, where would they do it where they could really feel that there was not exploitation going on? My recommendation is when people ask, where can I get local honey, is to find someone who sells the honey, uh, markets the honey at a farmer's market. Get to know what we call getting to know your local beekeeper. So that's a one-to-one conversation with them, asking questions about where the honey comes from, where's the flower source, where do you keep your bees, is it in an, in an area that they, you know, that, that's maybe got pesticides and things? Is it somewhere natural? So finding what's called raw, unfiltered, and the key term is cold-packed, okay? A lot of beekeepers in my area are starting to put cold-packed on. In other words, they take the honey straight out of the comb, and they use the temperature of the air. They don't heat it up to, you know, like some beekeepers heat it to 120 degrees, 150. Of course, that pasteurizes the honey, and then basically you're just taking the real food and destroying it. And so that's where it comes from. It's a local beekeeper, cold packed and unfiltered. Unfiltered means it's still got everything in this. You know, sometimes I just jokingly say, yeah, we, we keep sometimes the bee stingers in there too and the bee parts. No, we don't do that. We just have to be relatively unfiltered. And so it's something that you get from your local beekeeper. And, of course, the best way to do it is to become a beekeeper yourself and they raise your own bees. And that's be taking a class and dealing with, you know, stings if you deal with two and that kind of process. Uh, and that helps with too. But local beekeepers at a farmer's market works the best, in my opinion. You know, and, and I know that a lot of people listening, and, and even myself, as I ask you that question and, and listen to the answer, it's hard not to think, well, that's the same kind of question that somebody would ask about, well, where do I get humane dairy? Well, where do I get humane eggs? Well, those of us who have chosen to be vegan believe that there is no such thing, and that's why we don't consume those products. Is honey different? The honey different here, that particular point here. Um, honey is, you know, produced by, carried from a plant to their hive. It's distilled, so it's gone from 80% water down to 80% sugar, which would be water content, and then stored. And that process of whether they do it wild from, you know, getting it out of a tree or getting it out of a box is just the person that helps take care of those insects to make sure that they are keeping a product that is pure, unfiltered, cold-packed from the person there to do it. But again, it boils down to, I think, your own personal consideration of where you step on that boundary of vegan as to how what, what part of the spectrum you're basically in. And so, um, yeah. Uh, I said this was going to be a controversial show, listeners. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it really yes, is. it is. One other quick yes. uh, question, Paul, just as we're winding down here. I see these pictures of beekeepers wearing these like fireman suits and they're doing this smoking thing where they're smoking the bees out of the hives. That looks very cruel to me. Does everybody do that? Is that necessary if humans are going to get honey? What's the deal with the smoking? You know, smoking is an interesting concept, and it's been in the beekeeping community a long time. And the really reason being is because if bees, way before humans stepped on the planet here, too, if they're, if they're living in a tree and a forest fire came along, they had to get out of the 
tree and to another location grabbing honey and they would just uh, vacate their tree it was burned down and they would be off to find another place to uh, to live so humans have picked up that that's instinct that's inbred into the bees and so not every beekeeper will use them because we forget that bees don't have eyelids so if you put smoke in there it's not a healthy thing for the bees and if you do use smoke it's a very minimal in fact i have had some people who won't even eat the honey if it's been smoked because it's sent they think it contaminates the uh, the, the product um, but some beekeepers, like in pajama, Japan, for example, they will chew gum, rose up peppermint gum, and they will blow their breath with peppermint gum onto the beehive. Also, when we're in high fire dangerous areas, you can't even use a smoker because it's an incendiary device. It'll start a fire here. So what we do is we use sugar water or what we call liquid smoke, and you just spray a little bit, and it keeps the bees, or even water. It just calms the bees down. Um, and that's what the other alternative. So more and more beekeepers are not using the smoke idea because you know people have an aversion to smoke. It's like a barbecue, a house burning down the cells, and so they step away. So there's other alternatives that I've just explained that you can use. And we certainly in Santa Barbara, we've had some major fires. The sugar water idea works very well. Okay. Well, I think we are all much more educated uh, about bees and honey uh, than we were before. I do want to let everybody know we have done a couple of other shows on this topic. I mentioned the one uh, about bee-free honey. We also did one a couple of years ago with June Stoyer, who has a very popular podcast called The Organic View. She's a very dedicated vegan, and she does choose uh, to purchase honey uh, from, from beekeepers that she knows. So lots to think about, and I think that's the point, isn't it, that we're thinking. Yes. I think if, if more people thought this whole world would be a much better place than it has been lately. So thank you so much, Paul Cronshaw, for being on the show. You can find Paul at Santa Barbara Beekeepers Association. I'll put his info in the show notes and Laura Theodore's as well. Everybody, thanks for listening. God bless Thank you. you. Eat your veggies. Well and be happy. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. I'm Laura Worcester, host of the Intuitive Life Podcast. As an intuitive medium and teacher working with the world of spirit, I love to share the peace that comes with the awareness that our departed loved ones are still with us. And I also love to help people explore what it means to live an intuitively led life. Start listening now on mindbodyspirit.fm or wherever you get your podcasts.